Indeed, my fellow fight fans out there, it's Scott Fontana here with my partner Dan Urban, back for what I promise is a fantastic episode of the Couchside Judges. And how could it be possibly anything short of that when we have one of the most recognizable voices in the history of mixed martial arts joining us? I speak of none other than the UFC's lead play-by-play man, the one and only John Anik. John was gracious enough to take some time out of his incredibly busy schedule, even after his power went out at home and in the middle of prepping for this weekend's latest event at UFC Apex, which is headlined by heavyweights Alistair Overeem and Augusto Sakai. We'll talk about John's career, the amount of work that goes into preparing for fight nights, and of course his thoughts on judging in the sport, as someone with one of the best seats in the house. Well, as Dan and I said, we are ecstatic to welcome John Anik to the Couchside Judges. As many of you know, he's been part of the UFC broadcast team for nearly a decade, including the past few years as the lead play-by-play man. And for my money, the best in the business. You can listen to him and former UFC title contender Kenny Florian on the aptly named Anakin Florian podcast with new episodes to start each week. Welcome to the show, John, and thanks for joining us. My absolute pleasure. It's good to be with you. We probably should have put Kenny Florian's name first, but uh, that actually, the name of our podcast was actually just a placeholder until we found the name of the show, and here we are five years later, and we still haven't figured it out. So, <laughs> I think that dream is dead now, John. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> well, before we dive in, I'd like to acknowledge that you come into this interview with a key advantage over me uh, as a Celtics fan, because I'm a Raptors fan, and your team just beat up on mine in game one. Well, uh, hey, man, as a Boston sports fan who has experienced a lot of championship series, I can tell you that there's no celebrating going on with the 1-0 lead. I mean, maybe we should talk again in a week. Got to give the champs all the respect in the world. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to see the talent rise. Obviously, I do think the Celtics on paper have a, have a lot of weapons that seem to be peaking at the right time. But uh, there's a lot of work to be done, my man, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, we're early in the process for sure. So, John, uh, one thing we like to do with our guests is we like to ask how they got into the sport as a fan. Uh, so, really, what got the ball rolling for you in MMA? So, I try to tell the story as efficiently as possible, but I hosted a, a radio show called the Mouthpiece Boxing Show, and we traveled to all these HBO pay-per-view events and boxing events, and Gary Shaw was starting Elite XC in 2007, and so he invited a lot of the boxing media to come cover his debut show in Tunica, Mississippi in 2007. And uh, even though I didn't love the dragons breathing fire, there was so much star power on the fight card. I mean, Bigfoot Silva fight Cabbage Cohea and Gina Carano, Carano versus Julie Kedzie. KJ Noons got knocked out by Charles Crazy Horse Bennett. I could go on. But for me, this was the first time I had seen mixed martial arts live in person. And that gave me the bug as a fan. And then I got some career opportunities like MMA Live uh, at ESPN in 2008. And then my wheels really started to churn in terms of what I wanted to do with my life and career. But I think had I not been able to attend a live show in a good seat and just appreciated the sport for what it was at that time in my career, uh, I maybe still wouldn't have the deep appreciation, you know, that I have for the sport now. So I'm thankful that that happened, even if, you know, the the boxing purist in me at the time in 2007 might have been initially reluctant to, you know, go cover that MMA event. You know, I'm kind of, on a similar path as you, you know, I, I went to school for journalism. Uh, I went into print newspapers. You obviously went into radio and TV, uh, but you mentioned MMA live and I was a very big fan of MMA live. You guys did a fantastic job with that program about 10 years ago. What was your, what were some of your favorite memories from that time? 
Well, certainly getting the show on ESPN2 felt like the biggest hurdle in the world. So I think that accomplishment I would pick out more than any episode. For me, I cut my teeth, you know, on that show. I mean, I knew how to read a teleprompter, but I really learned that skill on that show. And uh, it really helped me to gain those repetitions at that stage of things. But uh, I just think early on, you knew we were dealing with something special when it came to all the different analysts that would come in there. You know, it was Kenny Florian and Rashad Evans at first, and then it evolved to, to be Brian Stan and Shale Sonnen and Pat Militich and King Mo Wall, who, as you guys know, has a ton to offer. And uh, on and on down the line it went. But uh, that was something we knew very early on was that, man, when you look at the NFL live set, our talent's just as good, and these guys don't have nearly the repetition. So it was a special time. It was a special show. It was really the first news and information show of its kind, and to see it get all the ESPN bells and whistles and graphics. And, uh, yeah, it's nice to hear you say that. I mean, people still remember that show fondly, and uh, maybe it'll come back. You just never know. Hey, that would be great. I I would totally welcome MMA Live back (laughs) with you in the chair. I want you in the chair. Well, thanks. We'll see. We'll see if we can fit it into the schedule. I got a lot of flying, I think, to do over the next few months, but we'll see. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> hey, real quick, though, too. Did you always want to go into broadcast or did you kind of consider going other paths with your journalism background? So I knew I wanted to work in sports from a, a very young age. Uh, I, I started out as a sports writer, I think, like a lot of uh, broadcast journalists do. Uh, I I had clean copy, but I was never the most creative writer. I kept running into too many Chuck Mendenhalls out there uh, who would just write me under the bus. But I felt like when we would get into a sports argument in the newsroom, as I was editing the agate page or whatever the hell I was doing, I felt like I could articulate <laughs> myself pretty well. And so um, then my mind started to think maybe if we go back to school for broadcasting, get an internship in radio, maybe we could go be on WEI in Boston. And even though that never happened, uh, I I felt like broadcasting would be a, a better path to where I was trying to get. It's funny. You mentioned the agate page because that's something I did early on in my career as well. This is something that most people, Dan doesn't understand what I'm talking about. But <laughs> <laughs> it, that was uh, That was not always the most fun, but it, it, you certainly cut your teeth on it, right? Oh, hey, you got to do it. Put in the time, you know. So, John, you mentioned your uh, busy schedule. I was really, you know, curious how your UFC duties are. How much preparation goes into every fight night? You know, what's a typical fight week uh, from your perspective? Well, it's intensive. I mean, depending on whether or not I have a back-to-back, it's more than a week, right? So I have been prepping for this September 5th show for several days now. The voiceovers that you hear in the arena oftentimes happen 11 or 12 days out. And I can't tell you how many fights in this COVID-19 climate I have voiced that have not happened, you know? Uh, (laughs) Alternate universe stuff. Yeah, the voiceover machine's getting a workout. Uh, You know, some guys, I think I've voiced four or five fights of theirs that haven't even happened. So it's a it's a pretty involved process. I think anyone who follows me on social media and has seen the way I go about my fighter cards, some of some of it can just be a simple math equation. If you, let's say you got twenty six fighters on a thirteen fight card and you want to devote ninety minutes to each fighter when it comes to doing their fighter card, watching film, reading interviews, ninety times twenty six is a lot of minutes, you know. So that doesn't even begin to get into show formatics and things like that. You know, I have a Microsoft Word document of all the promos and everything else and the bumps to break. You know, people think we just show up and talk, but even a bump to break, right, where you're showing a locker room shot. I'm trying to humanize these guys and get as much information out as possible. And oftentimes during the fight, those windows are tiny, if not non-existent. So on a locker room shot, when I'm saying coming up next, 
I'm trying to tell you that the guy wrestled the Grand Valley State, right? So some of that stuff is written. You try to deliver it in a non-written way. But, oh, man, I mean, I get anxiety just thinking about the prep. For me, there's no performance anxiety. All the anxiety is in the preparation. Every single one of these shows is an absolute bear. And that's why we, we almost never, the play-by-play guys, I'm not talking about the analysts, but the play-by-play guys, we never do more than, you know, three in a row if it can be helped. Because uh, with respect to the football announcers, this isn't like calling a football game. This is an entirely different beast. Yeah, you get different people every week. Yeah, 41 out of 52, you know, I probably do 25 a year. So, uh, again, the back-to-backs are what are really challenging because oftentimes my specific fighter prep doesn't begin until Sunday afternoon, uh, sometimes Monday if uh, if it's a late show Saturday, depending on where we are in the world. So when you have an Abu Dhabi Fight Island situation where Saturday turns to Wednesday, um, I have blank fighter cards on Monday, which is uh, pretty uneasy, but... It is what it is certain weeks. You know, I've done back-to-back nights, which is not ideal, but this is the devil we know. So uh, it, it kind of is what it is. You signed up for it, right? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so let's talk judging, uh, John, because this is kind of our niche on the couch side, judges. And yeah, for, for what we love uh, on the show, you are definitely one of the, the most informed commentators that we have out there when it comes to the criteria. Um, and, and we really appreciate the way you're educating the the folks at home and stuff. Cause you know, for years, I think we kind of had it drilled into us what the criteria was because the criteria obviously was a little more vague than it is now. It was clarified a few years ago. Um, how, how well do you feel you understand the application of the criteria today? Well, not as well as you guys. I have a printed copy of the scoring everywhere I go and I look at it constantly but i think it's still vague to your sort of opening salvo it's still vague right i mean even now the language discourages you so much from scoring a 10 10 that i actually went to the extent to remove my verbal mention of a 10 10 on broadcast which i had done you guys may have noticed for a couple years except in the case of a 10 10 round the language is so preventative for that type of language that you might as well not even include it on the broadcast and that's me as a fan who happens to have a relatively powerful seat, making my own interpretation to remove that, you know, obviously I clear it with a producer. Um, sure. But, you know, I, that's my issue is that it's still vague. Um, I, I feel like I understand it, uh, albeit not on the as deep a, as I could, you know. I mean, I'm trying every show to get better, printed copy in every folder, but, uh, you know, I still think it's vague and open to interpretation. Yeah, my understanding is, all well, our understanding is that it was actually left purposefully vague so that because, you know, if you write down too many rules and too many this and that situations because of the the wild nature of the way a fight can go, it kind of gets it. You almost get a little hamstrung. And I think they did that on purpose. Right. Is my understanding. So, so maybe so. As, yeah, sorry, you go. No, please. No, and, and maybe so. I just... Uh... I don't know. I have a few points of contention with it, and I do think there are ways that we could be more clear. But no, as you were saying, please. Oh, actually, what what are your points of contention? I would love to hear those. Well, namely the 10-10. You know, I I also think that you – it's ambitious to think we would ever be able to get to wholesale changes when it comes to like a 10-minute round or judging the totality of a fight. Um, but I do think oftentimes we throw out 10-9 so liberally – and then we don't have the ability to change our score. And then obviously our 10-9 mathematically in round two just doesn't at all match up with our 10-9 in round one. 
um, even if you got both sides, fight blue corner, red corner, and you're 1919. But one of those 10 9 rounds was just so much more clear for one fighter. So we're sitting there 1919, and we don't have a tie in any other professional sport in the world. And I just feel like we got to figure out a way to do better. And I nominate you guys to help us affect change, <laughs> yeah, we- you know? <laughs> We actually have our own uh, criteria that we try to modify. It's based on, on you know, the actual ABC criteria, but we kind of sort of narrowed 10-9 and widened 10-8 and 10-7 uh, to try to get more Just varied something we do for scores. Fun. It's kind of yeah. a, we call it past judgment. Yeah, I like it. We we actually had looked back at uh, the John Jones-Dominic Reyes fight from earlier this year, which I don't know that it necessarily would have changed because a lot of those rounds were still very close. But, uh, yeah, that was a fight too you were you were obviously on the call for that one and and some of your colleagues were uh not pleased with the judging that night yeah i mean for us i think it's obviously difficult as we say uh there's so much going on and particularly when it comes to me and my communication with the truck and trying to work in a promo you know sometimes i can't even call out a combination because i'm charged with getting a promo in and i'm sitting on that card right and so a lot of my job at times doesn't even have to do with fighting. So you should should certainly throw my scorecard out on fight night. And that's why you'll notice I don't pretend to be an analyst. And certainly on fight night, I, I try not to score rounds. Maybe if I think I need to balance things out, you'll hear me opine <laughs> from time to time. Um, sometimes the balance I, is needed. <laughs> but, but certainly sometimes when I go back and watch it, I mean, Pedro Munoz, Frankie Edgar, I get off the air uh, and I go to social media the next day. I don't go on it right away. Uh, I learned that lesson the hard way. But I go on the next day and a lot of people think it was a one-handed call for Pedro Munoz. Uh, You know, I thought Pedro won the fight. I go back and watch it. And again, more often than not, I stand behind the call when I go back and watch it. But uh, yeah, it's a tricky thing when we are calling fights to think that our scorecard would be worth a damn. You know, there's so much that goes into the broadcast. But you know, it is what it is, um, but certainly informing the masses and trying to educate. Um, but again, if you're talking about vagary and being open to interpretation, I'm just one man, guys, right? So you're you're calling on my interpretation on a broadcast, right? So you got to be careful, right? Like we're not trying to, you know, spin the whole narrative. And oftentimes the perception is the reality. And so if the broadcast spins a narrative, maybe that becomes the fan reality of what's going on. So um it's a tricky thing. That's why you really got to be convicted when you have an opinion about something strongly. And if you don't, then maybe you just lay out. Have you ever had the opportunity to attend any judging or referee training courses? Or You know, I've sat down extendedly with, with John McCarthy and with Kevin McDonald and several of the referees uh, I am close with. And I've had, you know, conversations with Sal D'Amato and Chris Lee and some of the other judges. But no, I haven't gone through uh, a Rob Hines or John McCarthy class, and it's probably overdue. You know, I guess you could argue it should be required, you know, ingestion for our entire broadcast team. I would think especially for the fighters, and and not just, you know, because they're commentators, but, I mean, they fought their whole careers and didn't necessarily have a full grasp of the, the criteria. Right, we get right. the sense that a lot right. of fighters don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. Uh, we certainly, uh, you know, have experience that a lot where where guys feel like they should be given credit for for certain things you know uh it's hard though too right because i at our core we're all watching a fight and we see two guys at the end of it and feel like we can pick out a rightful winner and oftentimes you know 
that's not the guy who wins the fight. And so I think it's it's always going to be a part of our sport, especially at the highest levels of the game, where it's hard to see individual strikes and it's 25 minutes and three judges, right? Certainly need five judges, boys, right? I mean, I, I haven't listened to you guys all that often, but are we advocating for five judges instead of three? You know, John McCarthy might tell you there's only eight or ten elite judges in the entire world. So, um, you know, I don't know if five makes sense, but what do you guys think about five judges? I like five judges. I, I think, you know, getting more more eyes on the fight cage side, I think that would help. I'm I'm actually against five judges because, you know, it kind of has, as is mentioned, there really just aren't a ton of truly elite judges out there. You know, if if right. if people think that the three judges we get don't know what they're doing, what if what are two more going to do? Right. Well, right. That's certainly the the counter argument. I just feel like lessening the margin for error uh, is something that it would certainly accomplish. But I hear you. Yeah, yeah. You know, on kind of that same note, is there anything about the process of way fights are judged? You mentioned more judges. Are you open to open scoring or any other ideas you have? Oh, yes, absolutely open to open scoring, but it effectively changes the game, right? It changes the sport. But yes, if I got a vote and I was part of a voting body, I would vote for open scoring. So a fighter would at least know where they stand. I also... I understand that octagon control is a tertiary condition, but generally speaking, as a very general statement, and again, a judge is a human being too, and some of them might like this as well, but forward motion being offensive the way Pedro Munoz was, forcing the action, trying to cut off your opponent. You know, I like offense, so to me that is offensive, even though it doesn't really mean anything at the end of the day. So I wish that would count for something. I know damage is one of the three Ds right now, but I do think, uh, you know, maybe that should count for a little bit more somehow, some way. But again, I understand how hard these jobs are, and as hard as I think my job is, I think referees and judges have it even harder. So I respect the craft, of course. Uh, and I wouldn't. I would love a day where I could maybe be qualified enough where I could sit down and be a judge because I like watching the sport enough. And uh, I'd love to just not talk and be able to sit there and then just write down, <laughs> write down ten, ten, ten if I goddamn well please. <laughs> well, the the one thing I would say to uh, to counter what you're talking about of kind of you know the cage generalship or whatever you know to borrow a uh, uh, Dominic Cruz's phrasing there. It, if you have somebody who is not necessarily controlling. The action from that standpoint, I think of someone like Anderson Silva, a counter striker who was totally in control. You know, it's one of those things that's kind of tough to measure. Very fair. And again, Frankie sort of dictated the way that fight played out. Right. I would argue yeah. that maybe Pedro landed more significant strikes and it was certainly close. I mean, Frankie had some big moments in that fight. Maybe I'm just bringing it up because it's the most recent main event that I called and it happened to be pretty damn close. Uh, sure. But I do believe that Pedro was really forcing the action and good on Frankie for, for making him miss a lot. I guess I just felt like Pedro made Frankie miss a lot too. But uh, that's the toughest part for us is the individual strikes, right? Because if guys land simultaneously, you know, you'll hear me in the most efficient way I can try to say, you know, he landed and so did he. And, you know, it's uh, it's a tricky thing. but. On the fly, we, we try to do the best we can to uh, acknowledge both athletes, especially in a close back-and-forth fight like that. Right, and in close decisions, you know, you'll see a lot of fans throw out the term robbery. You know, we're not we're not a big fan of that term on the show. Uh, what are your thoughts, you know, when you hear robbery uh, in oh, these close decisions? 
Yeah, I think I'm probably aligned with you guys. Uh, that word should really be reserved for special situations. Uh, you know, that that word gets trotted out entirely too often. And we hear it all the time, as you can all imagine, the time. right? And I can't even believe that certain fights get associated with that word. But I love the passion and I love that people feel strongly about that. You know, I prefer that word when it comes to maybe guys not getting title fights or things like that, you know, but, uh, sure. Yeah, Munoz certainly, uh, was not robbed. And of course we saw that word again after last weekend. It's funny. You, you we obviously we've been talking about this Edgar Munoz fight when Dan and I watched this, both he and I thought that Munoz won, uh, rounds. What was it? One, three and four, Dan, is that right? One, three and Sounds four, right. I believe. Yeah. One, three, one, four. three and four. And the funny thing is because the judges were split on, three out of the five rounds, if you look back, Munoz won a majority of the judges in those same rounds, one, three, and four. But because of the nature of the scoring, it matters what each judge thought, not necessarily the majority of judges in each round. So when you look at it from a certain point of view, to borrow Obi-Wan Kenobi, which I love to do, uh, you could say that Munoz really did win on the judges' cards, in a sense. It's crazy. We we went through this for the first time in the history of our podcast, almost 300 episodes last week. And you're absolutely right. If you do it, I think, on the aggregate, right, Munoz, you total up all the judges' scores per round. He had more points, more rounds, you know? It's crazy. Depending on how you interpret those three judges' scorecards, you can argue that Munoz won. That's how seemingly close that fight was. But uh, I feel good for Frankie because I think there were fights in his past. The Benson-Henderson fight comes to mind where he was on the wrong side. But it's tough, right? You're Pedro Munoz. you got the number five next to your name. You think you're going to add that Frankie Edgar scalp to your resume. And uh, it doesn't go down that way. And all of a sudden, it's like, man, how am I going to get to a title fight in two years? You know, So it's it's hard. It's like walking back into your new life when you lose a fight like that. It's really hard. It is tough, and and to be clear, I understand uh, that this isn't the way fights are judged. But it is. It's always interesting when we see these kind of. I believe the same thing happened in the second noon Shevchenko fight, where Shevchenko actually she also had a majority there too. So it's when you see that that you can legitimately make a case for the losing fighter. Hey, I did enough to win. It just you know the judges kind of it didn't align that way. Right, and. You know, Jose Aldo uh, obviously got a championship opportunity despite being on the wrong end of a judge's scorecard in a title eliminator spot. So, uh, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that, uh, you know, a guy could still get rewarded by the promotion. But uh, it is what it is. I just think overall we can get to a place whether it's open scoring. I mean, I obviously you guys can sort of sense my passion about this. I would love to see a 10-minute first round. I, you know, I just I, I just hear from a lot of fighters who feel like, you know, in a fight to the death, like, you know, best of luck beating Paul Felder in round six because he's still <laughs> there, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, the funny thing, though, you mentioned the 10-minute the, the round, though, and the one counter that I've heard to that from officials is that it's hard to focus for five minutes at a time. Imagine doing it for twice as long. Well, that's, but I mean, what are we trying to accomplish here, right? I just think it proves greatness, you know? Uh, Think about how many fighters, and again, this is open scoring changes the nature of the fight, right? And puts a lot of pressure on the athlete. You're in front of 50,000 people potentially, and the whole building knows that you're down and you don't like completely go for broke in round three. I mean, you're going to have the whole fan base incited. You know what I mean? So I don't think it's necessarily ideal for the athletes 
to have to look up and completely change their strategy, you know, based upon that reality. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the things we talk about do effectively change the sport. You know, that if you're doing a 10 minute round, right, guys are going to change their training habits. They're going to prepare for that differently. So I don't know, just thinking outside the box, but I do think it would, uh, it would eliminate a lot of the bottom feeders for lack of a better way to put it, you know, with that first, that first 10 minutes of hell. You know, I'm honestly, I'm a big outside the box kind of thinker too. You should hear some of the conversations I have with people behind, uh, behind closed doors. Cause it, some of the stuff is just doesn't make any sense. But one thing that I've thought of kind of on the same, uh, wavelength as you and Dan, I think agrees seven round fights. Uh, we, so a lot of television commercials. So explain this one. <laughs> so <laughs> more for championship bouts, you know, like if we have five, you know, you're talking about Edgar and Munoz the other day, those guys could have gone an extra two rounds. Imagine if they had two more rounds to sort it out. So as oh, seven, covered, I said seven minute rounds, I mean, seven rounds, excuse me, seven rounds, but those are five minute rounds, right? Yes. Correct. Right. So as someone who's covered a boxing death, you know, I just, I, I think you start to play with fire, right? You talk okay. about 12 times three, 36 minutes, you know, obviously boxing's got, you know, the count come up, get another concussion. If you can survive to stand back up, whereas an MMA more often than not, you get that first concussion. The fight is usually over. Um, I don't know, man. I just think 35 minutes is a lot. You're right that it would have certainly provided clarity, but for a to be 39 years old in October, Frankie Edgar, you know, I think that's a, like getting him to sign on the dotted line for a three round fight versus a seven round main event. Yeah. I, mean, I like the way, I like the way you're thinking, but it's a, I think it's a huge ask for a lot of fighters even to extend a training camp for five, but I like it. I don't hate it. All right. You know, and, and that's a valid point. That's one that I had not considered. And, and uh, I mean, that just had to be a tough experience for you to have to gone through that too. Yeah, I just, uh, I'm just, I just have so much respect for all these athletes and this whole process and what they've all been doing this year in this climate. It's been pretty, pretty crazy to see firsthand. Yeah, we're we're big fight advocates here, fighter advocates, you know, especially um, myself. Um, going back actually to the judges and kind of something maybe you would like to see. Do you have interest in maybe the judges being made more available to the media by commissions? Because I, you know, my understanding is a lot of the commissions don't really like it when the judges start talking to people no that's correct referees and judges both i mean there are referees who have been on my podcast there are referees and judges who i've talked to about having their own segment on my podcast but yes as a body they are largely discouraged from talking but yes it would be great to uh to hear an articulate guy like sal d'amato be given the platform to defend his 4-1 munoz card of course now Kind of on the same note here, you know, we have in Bellator, you mentioned Big John McCarthy before, that he's been added to their team, and he offers the insight into, you know, the way officials perceive the in-cage action. What do you think about the UFC adding a former official kind of in that same range? There's there's only one Big John McCarthy, of course, but, you know, sort of the same way you guys have you utilized uh, Trevor Whitman uh, with the coaching perspective there. We, we think that that's been great. What do you think? Oh, Trevor Whitman is a god. He is outstanding. I can't wait to have him back on the broadcast. Uh, yeah, I mean, I used to break bread with John McCarthy all the time, and I, I would say to him, you know, bro, we need you next to us as that third guy. I thought he would be the perfect third guy. Yeah, I think there's a Mike Pereira official-type role where selectively two or three times a night uh, you would go to a, a former referee. Absolutely. I mean, it'd be great for us to have that resource because uh, – 
you know, taking one course ain't going to, or three courses or however many courses ain't going to make you an expert, right? For a guy who's been there. So yes, I would love to have a judge or referee that we could go to. Uh, and I think too, you know, there's a reason our commentator scorecard is not on the screen, right? I mean, you can, uh, I, I haven't been told this, right? But again, it's hard for a commentator to score a fight, you know? Heaven forbid yeah. commentators who are on social media during a fight and doing everything else, you know what I mean? It's hard enough to call the fight, never mind think about scoring it. So to have a judge or a referee who, you know, doubled as a, a Harold Letterman and could also give you a scorecard, I think would have a lot of value. Yeah, that's one thing we've always appreciated about you, John, is the fact that you seem to understand the the difference between doing your job and doing the job of a uh, you know a, you know a judge and really kind of saying what's going on here. We love it when you know your peers, you know people like like DC and and Bisping and and Cruz, and they provide great insight into what the fighters are trying to do. But it's one of those things that you know we no disrespect to them. We like it when they stay in their lane and give us that perspective because that is what their strength is. Right. No, and they obviously are outstanding, and uh, they all have their different strengths. You know, some might have a bigger voice or personality, and uh, yeah. But I do think that we're all sort of learning too. I mean, there's a lot of learning that goes on show to show when it comes to the judging and everything else. And uh, I think the more you sort of familiarize yourself with the language, the more it'll stick home, I guess. Yeah, you know, uh, in the midst of all these fights that we've had, you know, with UFC Apex and Fight Island, it's it's kind of been nonstop, and it doesn't look like it's going to be nonstop until, uh, or you're not going to get a break until the end of the year, right? But uh, have you noticed the judging kind of being more consistent during this period because we've had the same judges, no, no kind of local level judges? Yeah, I mean, I think overall the judges referees officials have done a pretty good job uh the the scorecards for munoz edgar were all over the place though i hate to just focus on that fight guys but like you know there was no alignment when it came to those rounds so uh is that because they're all seeing things from a different side of the octagon you know i do think generally speaking everybody has done a good job but uh uniformity we do not have what do you think about you know we mentioned what we do as far as our scoring system but i mean you probably remember just about 10 years ago, there was California tried out a half point system. What do you think of something like that? So you got a first round and it's 10, nine for the blue corner. And then the second round is a 10, nine for the red corner, but it's not quite that way. It'd be nice to be able to be like, you know what? I'm going to make round one and 10, eight and a half. And then that'll be 10, nine. And now I have a scorecard that properly reflects the first 10 minutes that I have seen with my eyes people shun me for saying, no, you can't go back and rescore it. You know? Yeah. I'm all for half points. I'm all for anything that gives us a more accurate score after round two, going into round three, honestly, anything, um, anything that would affect change in a positive way. Um, I, and, and that's why I'm all for judges having the freedom to, uh, to even rescore rounds. Rescore rounds. Interesting. That is, that is something that's different because it's just it's it's a very difficult thing right i mean it's so easy to just write down 10 9 but it's really hard to write that eight down i understand the language has been opened up a little bit and it's a little bit more liberal but you know you still got to write down 10 8 you still got to have the balls to write down 10 8 and uh it's a hard thing to do you know it'd be a lot easier to write down 10 8.5 yeah, no, I, I mean, I would agree on that. Kindred spirit here as far as a more specific scoring system. Uh, the, the only concern I have in terms of judges being able to change their scores is, well, you know, 
that kind of leaves a lot of room for for manipulation at that, that point. Of course, of course. Right. Yeah. Well, that's why a lot of people roll their eyes when I, when I say that and I'm okay with that. You know, I guess it's just difficult because it's like, Oh man, I just scored that round, that round 10, nine, but I can't give this guy a 10, eight here, you know, and then you get in your own head. You don't want that. Um, it's tough. It's a tough gig. I would bet that with more half point, like if there was some sort of half point system or at least something, you know, it doesn't have to be half points. Cause I mean, who can do fractions? Let's face it. Um, it, it would definitely allow less need for that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think some people would have a counter argument to almost anything you would say. Right. I mean, the 10, 10 discouragement in the language, I think is in part because you'd have a lot of draws with those 10, 10s, you know, but I see plenty of close rounds, you know, and you can't go 10, 9.5. I see plenty of close rounds that are still scored 10 nines. What are you supposed to do with those even rounds? They force you to pick a winner. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you mentioned before kind of that you wish that there was a little bit more room for 10, 10 rounds. And yeah, I, I do think that just from speaking with other judges, it seems that they really don't want to do that mostly because one strike difference, which in theory they can be able to perceive, you know, in theory, uh, should be enough because it's enough to technically have won the round. So I know that's the counter argument to that, but yeah, right, right. I'm I'm certainly in in favor of you know not this it doesn't have to be half point but yes something more specific kindred spirits my man I do think we're seeing more ten eights though and I love to see it absolutely so John thanks for taking the time to uh, join us today uh, it's really it's really been great having you I just have one last question for you totally unrelated who would win in a name pronunciation contest you or Joe Martinez oh I will take Joe Martinez down with respect. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many little intricacies. There's so many little intricacies that go into it, right? Even though he speaks multiple languages, with respect to my dear colleague, Joe Martinez. But I'll give you an example. This this weekend, we have Montana De La Rosa and Marcos Rogerio De Lima, right? So they both have that D-E in their last name, and they pronounce them differently. Montana says De La Rosa, and Marcos says Rogerio De Lima. Little things like that that you can only master by listening to those audio files ad nauseum the way that I do. And you have to immerse yourself in the practice. So I put my pronunciations humbly up against anybody's in the game, you know, because that little nuance, my producers are so good that they'd probably pick up on that if I said Marcos Rogerio de Lima. You know what I mean? So I work for the guys who are listening listening to those files day in and day out. And, uh, <laughs> You know, they, they make me better. So I appreciate the question. Oh, man, you nail it, too. Real quick, too. Give me, because I'm not going to do it right, Hamzat Shimaev. Give me, give me the right way. Hamzat Shimaev. Yeah, that's one we all got to get down, huh? Not I think sure. we need to get used to that one. <laughs> <laughs> we call him Mr. 10-7 because he got that 10-7 round. Right, right. I like it. Yeah, well, you know, again, John, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate you giving your insight to us. And, and you know, we hope to... Uh, we hope to see you uh, on the show again sometime, and, and obviously we'll be watching you the next time you're on the air. Cool. Thank you, guys. My pleasure. All right. Thank thanks, you. John. So, Scott, that was awesome getting to speak to John Anik. Guy puts in so much work into this sport. You can tell his passion for it, and he would really like to see you know the scoring improved in the best way possible. Yeah, he's got some interesting ideas. Uh, again, I, like I said, he's a kindred spirit with me because you know I have some kind of outside-the-box ideas uh, from time to time, which, yeah, probably are, are crazy, but I think it's good to challenge the status quo and 
And if John's doing that too in his private conversations, more power to him. I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like, you know, all oh, the decision happens and then it, it's just done with, you know, you can tell he really wants to see uh, things be changed a bit. And it's great that he is a student of the game too. You know, he's, he's mentioned talking with, you know, some of these other judges and referees over the years and, and, you know, like Kevin McDonald, who we've had on this show. Uh, that's really nice to, to know that he's not just sitting there and, and, you know, resting on his laurels. He's asking questions. He's learning. He's, he's picking his brain. Like he always says, I'm just sure. one man. And, and he's, he's very humble. So I appreciate that. And carrying a printed version of the criteria every, every week. And, uh, you know, being able to reference that, just trying to get better, you know, got to love it. Absolutely. And, uh, and I should also mention that at the beginning we mentioned game one had just happened of the Celtics Raptors series. Uh, this was recorded on Monday with John. It is now Thursday and we are just coming off of the Raptors hitting a game winning three pointer. They're still down two one. Oh, I understand that it's a long <laughs> series. I, I have a lot of respect for the Celtics and what they bring to the table. But come on, let me have my day here. All right, it was a big have, win. Have a second left, three-pointer. OG Ananobi, shout out to you. Yeah, big win for you. <laughs> but yeah, so we'll move on to UFC Apex. We're, we're not a basketball show. We're, we're an MMA show. So UFC Apex, it was the ninth fight night we've had there. Uh, the main event, of course, as we mentioned earlier, is Alistair Overeem and Augusto Sakai at heavyweight. What does this fight do for you? Uh, I mean, Overeem's always fun to watch. I'm not really that pumped for Sakai. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's heavyweights. Uh, Overeem, That's why I ask because you're not always yeah, high. Overeem can go, so I'm not worried about Overeem making it boring. No, no, for sure. I, you know what? And the funny thing is, too, I find myself liking Overeem even more as time goes on because, you know, earlier on in his heavyweight run after Pride fell and he moved to heavyweight full time, you know, he had this kind of reputation as a bit of a can crusher, right? You know, he was beating these heavyweights outside of the UFC and, you know, wasn't defending his Strike Force heavyweight championship that he had. And then finally, he got to Strike Force again, was participated in the the Grand Prix that they had and then moved over to the UFC. He, you know, he, he had his ups and downs, but I actually really like where he's at. You know, he seems like he's very humble now. Yeah, I think he's just content. You know, this is the end of his career and he's just going to have fun with it. Whatever I happens, like happens. I like so. that. And, you know, I will say I'm still worried about the number of knockouts he's absorbed uh, in his very long combat sports career, which uh, if you read the athletic article today from Shaheen Al-Shati that he has had 90 plus combat sports fights. That's a lot. It is, but uh, he, he's Wolverine. He heals super fast. So maybe his brain is as much damage as it's taken. Maybe it's it's healed. Stipe tapped. Alistair felt it. <laughs> um, but you know what? I'll, I'll say this. You know, this it's not the most interesting headliner to me, mostly because of Sakai. It's not that Sakai isn't a good fighter or yeah, anything I... like that. He's obviously had a good run in the UFC so far. But yeah, he, he doesn't really do it for me. And this matchup itself isn't the most fascinating. I'm not even sold on Sakai yet. So I'm going to say uh, the Ream by KO. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with you. Ream KO. But I wouldn't be surprised seeing a Sakai knockout. I mean, it's heavyweights. What are the odds this one gets to the judges? I don't think this makes the judges' scorecards. What are the odds that it makes it to one scored round? What if it makes it? Out oh, of the I think first it'll round? get out of the first. Uh, you I think do that, okay. I think that's decent uh, okay. enough. So we might be talking about potentially a, a round there. To not we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But whatever it is, I do trust the judges we have there because they're coming off a fantastic week last week. Where you, honestly, you couldn't really have been much better so my faith in them couldn't be higher 
Yeah, and then if we get another round like we had versus Walt Harris, for sure we'll have something to talk about. That's true. That was that was a wild first round, and ultimately he came back. But uh, yeah, what about beyond this? This is not the biggest card in terms of number of fights here. What what else do you want to see? Is there anything? Uh, I'm a little bit interested in seeing uh, Tiago Moises versus Jalen Turner. Moises is coming off that big win versus Michael Johnson, in which he looked pretty bad in the first round, but relied on his jiu-jitsu, dropped to his back, and attacked the leg, uh, again, an ankle lock finish. And uh, so I'm excited to see what he can do uh, coming off that victory. Right on. But what fight are you looking forward to? Nothing. <laughs> okay. You know what I'm really looking forward to? It's not one particular fight. I'm looking forward to nobody having their fight pulled on Saturday just hours before the event because of a COVID positive test. That's not so much to ask, right? That would be nice. We've had it each of the last two weeks, three out of the last five events. I'm just getting tired of this, and and I'm really dissatisfied with the way the protocols have worked since they've left Fight Island. I thought Fight Island, everything they did was fantastic. I can't wait until they go back there with this, uh, you know, worst-kept secret around that they're going back to Fight Island. (laughs) <laughs> I just, I'm just tired of it. Just just go back to Fight Island. Don't come back. Stay out there. I trust the judges out there, so that's fine with me. You know, but I just can't hold my breath that we're actually going to make it out of a weekend with nobody having a positive COVID test. I'll say this, though. If there's one fight that I actually really do want to see, it's the one that just got put together earlier today, which was Sajara Eubanks against Julia Avila. And I like that because it's actually a better fight then the original one, which was Eubanks and Carol Hosa. Hosa, of course, was hospitalized with uh, weight cut issues, as were being reported. So we wish her well. But this is a better fight for me. I'm actually interested in that one. So you know what? We'll go with that. I actually want to see that. All right. Sarge is back in action. New opponent on a couple hours notice. But seriously, just, just, just everyone, don't get COVID. That's what I want. Wear a mask. Just go wear a mask. It's so easy. It's weird that they're catching it there because they're, they wouldn't be allowed to make the trip if they test positive prior to it. I'm not I'm not entirely familiar with all of the protocols for the fighters, but whatever it is, I know it's not as good as when they did Fight Island. So go back to that. Go back to Fight Island. Don't come back until COVID's gone. All right, time for Dan and I to tap out. One last thank you to John Anik for joining us on this episode, and good luck this weekend, of course, with the fights. We love speaking with people from all corners of the MMA world about judging, and you must too if you're still with us, right? The Couchside Judges were back again Monday after Overeem Sakai. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Couchside Judges, as well as myself at Scott underscore Fontana, and my DMs are open. Find me on Twitter as well at Dan Urban MMA. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Thanks again, everybody, and enjoy the fights this weekend. Later, guys. Later, guys.